We'll be in Psalm chapter 16 today as we continue our Advent series, as we look in the Psalms at the coming of the Messiah predicted in the Psalms, as we rejoice uh, from our side of redemptive history and we look back uh, to what our forefathers, our saints that came before us uh, said and, and wrote predicting the coming of the Messiah. Psalm chapter 16, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 16, David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that as we come to this place, this particular time and place in history, that, Lord, even here, Christ is seen. Christ is there. The message of redemption is not absent, but is found all throughout the pages of, pages of Scripture. And so, Lord, today, may we see and rejoice in this message of redemption, this message of salvation, this message of Christ that we see as the psalmist David writes for us in Psalm chapter 16. Lord, we come even as weak, broken, even as we come as those who are indeed uh, makers of mistakes. But Lord, we come today asking for your guidance, for your faithfulness, for your goodness and your grace, even over this time as we read and study your word together. Be glorified in us today, in Jesus' name, amen. There is something about the prospect of death and the nearness of death when it is near that brings out of a person what is most deep, what is most um, on their hearts in those times. There, there are scenes in movies, in, in kind of funny movies, action movies, uh, where you see this sort of portrayed, and, and sometimes it's, it's portrayed in funny ways, like, like in the movie Spider-Man, one of the more recent Spider-Man movies, there's a scene where uh, these high school kids, along with, uh, along with uh, the, the happy is his name, I think, Iron Man sort of handler guy, and, uh, and they're, they think they're about to die, and the, the drone is about to burst through the door, and they all begin confessing, and one of them says, I've wasted my life playing video games. Another one says, all I care about is what people think of me on social media. And then the, the last guy, the adult, goes, I'm in love with Spider-Man's aunt. And it's kind of this, 
this funny moment where just as they're getting ready to, to die, the confessions are coming out. What is, what is most important to them and sort of weighing on them comes out uh, in this time. And of course, everyone looks at him like, what on earth, you know? Uh, and, and although that's a comical scene, and it is, and there's other scenes like that in movies, I think there is something true about it, though. It's rooted in reality that when we come face to face with death, when we come face to face with our own mortality, it is in those moments, in those times, when what is truly most important to us, when what truly is on our heart, when what consumes us, when what, what takes hold of us really comes out. I'm reminded of a story that one of the pastors at uh, Together for the Gospel, the last year they had it, uh, a couple years ago, uh, said about R.C. Sproul. Um, if you have looked in our library very long at all, you'll know that R.C. Sproul is a name that, uh, that we like, that we enjoy. He was a very, uh, very prolific pastor, teacher, writer, very faithful uh, to the Lord and, and ministry to him and, and beneficial to, uh, to the church. And the, this one pastor, this theologian, this writer was recalling as he was, as he was doing some work and, and he wanted to get an interview with R.C. Sproul as R.C. Sproul was ending the, the, nearing the end of his life and um, was, was largely just almost bedridden, wasn't able to do much, wasn't able to get around, was very weak. And he recalled as he went and as he met with R.C. Sproul that as the conversation began, he could see the, the frailty in R.C. He could see that he was weak, that he was tired, and that he was wore out. And he, he could hear it through his voice and through his emotion. And, but he sat down and, and began to talk with R.C. Sproul about the things of God, about God's goodness, about his faithfulness, about what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. And he says, as the interview began and throughout this interview he said I could see R.C. Sproul this man who was near the end this man who who knew that death was imminent just begin to come to life and he was almost like he was in doubt he was he was just filled with with a certain kind of energy a certain kind of life as as he was interviewed by this this man near the end of his life and and he talked and began to just expound upon the riches of Christ with his brother in Christ there and and after talking with him for some time he he said, well, well, I'm so sorry, R.C., I, I didn't mean to, to keep you this long. It's, it's been a long time, but I'm going to have to go. And R.C.'s pro goes, I don't want you to leave. I want to keep talking about Jesus. There's nothing more enjoyable, more, more life-giving. There was nothing more jo- enjoyable, life-giving to R.C. Sproul than to reflect upon the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. And for believers, I think this is true. And we hear these kinds of stories of believers as they are nearing the end what pours out of their heart, what pours out of their soul, what we see so often is a picture of the hope that they have, of the glory of Christ and the effect that it has had on their life and especially the effect that it has on their approach towards death. Here in this psalm, this, this beautiful psalm penned by David, we see a psalm that is filled with hope and is filled with joy as he sings of the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God But what's interesting about this song of hope and joy is that it was written in the midst of an imminent threat, even the imminent threat of death upon David's life. We see this even by the initial plea itself as he begins this very psalm with the words, preserve me, O God. Hence why the theme of this psalm, which is joy, is paralleled also, as we notice, with the theme of death in this psalm. Death is, is a theme right alongside the theme of joy 
and satisfaction than God. And then verse 11, this concluding verse gives us a sort of summation of what it is that's in David's heart. Where his mind goes when he is faced with his own mortality, when he's faced with the threat of death. He says in verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We will see what brings David to this conclusion of joy and pleasures and life as we read this psalm that he writes for us so beautifully, even under the threat of danger. We start by looking at verses 1 and 2. And we see in these verses that for David, the Lord is everything. He says in verses 1 and 2, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Utter satisfaction for David is found in Yahweh and in Yahweh alone. He says, I have no good apart from you. All glory be to God is David's plea. Giver of every good and perfect gift. The common grace of God is owed for every good thing that we experience in this life. And David recognized that. Apart from his grace, his joy, and and his pleasure, all goodness is gone. There is no joy. There is no pleasure. There is no common grace apart from God. Apart from him, we have no good. And God gives many good gifts. And he gives many of them to the righteous as well as the wicked. This is why so many of the Psalms, in a sense, sort of, Lament the fact that as the enemies surround, it seems so often that they are succeeding, that the Lord is blessing the wicked and punishing the righteous. Because indeed, both the righteous and the wicked experience the common grace of God. Both the righteous and the wicked experience what it's like to have joy and and happiness in this life. The joy of enjoying a good meal is something that both the unrighteous and the righteous can experience. The joy of family and relationships is one that both believers and unbelievers can experience. Common graces are poured out upon both. They are all gifts from God. And as Christians, we recognize that these good gifts come from a good God. There are some in the Christian faith who wrongly conclude that living in light of these truths that Psalm 16 lays out in the first few verses means that we must deny ourselves any good things. That to partake and and enjoy the good things that God has given us is to forsake Christ. Things such as wealth, things such as marriage, or a host of other things. There are many who conclude that if we are to be faithful to God and and rejoice and, and, and find our satisfaction in Him alone, then we are to reject all other good things so as not to worship them instead. But that's not what the Christian life is supposed to be. Alistair Begg writes regarding true faith and the effect that it should have on our life. And he says, true faith is supposed to alter our value system such, not that we disdain the good, but that in comparison to having Christ, the good is a triviality. Or as Paul says, is absolute rubbish. Or as Alistair Begg says, rubbish. I could say it like him, I would, but carries more weight when he says it. But the question 
that we need to consider in the, the good things of this life is this. How much weight do we give them? Do we glory in the good things that this life has to offer, these common graces, these gifts from God? Or do we glory in the giver of those things? Do we cling to the, to the gift or do we cling to the giver of the gift? Where does your satisfaction lie? For David, as he writes this psalm, he recognizes that his satisfaction, his joy in life, and all the good that he experiences, and David experienced many good things. But all of it comes from God. And he deserves the glory for every ounce. So we see here, utter satisfaction, utter joy is found in Christ. But we move on to verses 3 and 4 and see that he goes on to contrast between the saints of God and the worshipers of other gods. I find it interesting what he says in verse 3. He says, May the Lord, oh, excuse me, he says, As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. I find it interesting what he says here. He says, As for the saints in the land, as for the ones who are holy, who are set apart in the land, he doesn't just say, As for the people in the land, he doesn't just say, As for the Israelites. Specifically, he says, the saints in the land. That is those whose hope and whose trust is rooted in the redemptive promises of God. You see, even in the land of Israel, even in the, the people of Israel, there are those who were trusting not in the promises of God to redeem his people, but were trusting in a host of other things, in their ethnicity, in their circumcision, in all of these things rather than God. And so we see that the author does not put his delight in those people, but in those who are trusting in the promises of God, the saints in the land. This serves as a reminder for us that not all Israel in this time, in Psalm chapter 16, or in any, or in any other time, are saved, but only the elect, only the holy ones, only those who trust in God and in his promises. The communion of saints is a source of great delight for David. And it is for all God's people, isn't it? The fact that we, we have a body, a, a fellowship, a communion of brothers and sisters in Christ in this time and for ages past and for ages to come. Together, worshiping the Lord, loving one another, caring one another is a great benefit to God's people. And David recognizes that and delights in that as one of the supreme gifts that God has given. But David then moves on to contrast the saints of God with those who turn to other gods. In verse 4, he says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out nor take their names on my lips. Indeed, those who seek after other gods... Those other gods might not be tangible gods like idols, although many times they were. But even today, people worship other gods all around us. People worship themselves. People worship their jobs. People worship their families. Put their satisfaction, their hope. They run to all sorts of other things besides the one true God. And for them, just like those in the psalm, their sorrows will 
multiply. Perhaps in this life, but certainly in the age to come. Their sorrows will multiply. For in those things there is no hope, there is no life, there is no joy. There is only condemnation. And David utterly rejects them and their idolatry. A refusal even to utter the names of these false gods and idols. And this is right for David to do. It's right for him to refuse to even speak their name. In fact, it's in accordance with the law. In Exodus chapter 23, 13, God himself, as he delivers the law to Moses, says, Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. And so David rejects the worship of false gods and refuses even to acknowledge them or utter their names. For what are they? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians saying that they are nothing. These false gods are nothing. They can do nothing. They can serve you nothing. And that is why they produce no hope. Not because their power is not strong enough or it is directed in the wrong direction, but because they have no power. And that's been proven. And so we see the contrast between the saints and the worshipers of other gods. And then point number three in verses five through nine, we see a sovereign God who chose his people. The whole psalm here for us is is beautiful. Beautiful psalm laid out before us. But for me, when I begin to come to these sections is whenever I really, man, as I began and and started sort of mining these verses for for the nuggets of gold found in them, I found that I started getting too many pages. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time here in verses five through nine, where we see in these verses such a great picture of contentment. We see... Verse 5, he starts and says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. In these verses, notice that David presents sort of two doctrines. These two doctrines about God that go together like peas and carrots. These doctrines produce peace and comfort in the life of the believer as they are taken together. The doctrines that God is both perfectly sovereign over all things. And at the same time, he is also near to his people and cares for them like a father. These two truths taken together are what produces for David, as he writes this psalm, such a sense of hope, such a sense of peace, such a sense of contentment in God. His sovereignty is on display in phrases like, you hold my lot. My whole life is in your hands. And the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. What does it mean that the lines have fallen for me in present places, as David writes. Recall where David is right now. He's likely facing down some sort of imminent threat. He started his his psalm with, Preserve me, O God. A plea for preservation, a plea for help. Some sort of danger has found its way into David's life. And if you think through David's life, you'll know that he was no stranger to danger. And yet, he writes here, 
the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That the paths of his life have fallen in pleasant places. Not because the paths of his life are free from cares, free from worries, free from pain, free from sorrow. But because the lines of his life have been paved by the one who is in control of all things. And the one who has promised good to his people. So that even as David faces down his enemies, even as David faces sorrow and hardship and pain, even there he considers that his lines have fallen in pleasant places. At the same time, we see that God is sovereign, that in his majesty he controls and determines all things in the universe and all things in our lives, but he also intimately knows his saints and instructs them and guides them. Look at the language David uses. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I think this is an amazing turn of phrase because what do we read in Romans chapter 11, 33 through 34? Paul says this in Romans eleven thirty three and following. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? We see in this picture that Paul writes for us the transcendence of God, the greatness of God, how God is wholly set apart from us. And there is none who could ever be his counselor because we could never attain to that. And yet, what we now see in the Psalms is that the very same God described by the Apostle Paul, who was far above any need of counsel, and whose judgments and ways are far beyond any human comprehension, is here depicted as the one who counsels David. The God who is so great, so holy, so mighty, is the God who directs our steps and guides our path. And gives us counsel. Because he's a God who though he is holy and righteous. He's a God who cares for his people. Not only does he provide counsel for his people. But he also provides his presence and his comfort to his people. In verse 8 David says. Because he is at my right hand I shall not be shaken. Joseph Alexander in his commentary on this verse. He notes that. The right hand here is not used in the sense of, of a place of honor the way it is in, in other passages throughout the scripture, just like Christ sits at, at the Father's right hand. But in this case, it is a picture of a position of protection, one of, of a guard. That's why with God at my right hand, David says, I shall not be shaken. It gives for me the picture of of a father and a son and the comfort and the security that is found by a child being at the right hand of his father. I remember when I was young and, and we went to the ocean a few times as a child and, and as a little kid going into the ocean, it's pretty intimidating because A, the ocean's huge, but to a kid who's just really little, those waves hitting the, the shore are huge. The current, it, it just can, can rip you all around when you, when you weigh next to nothing, when you're so small, when you're so sort of vulnerable. And I can remember the sense of, of fear and kind of caution that I felt when I went out into the, 
the ocean and was very careful not to go very far for fear of being tossed to and fro by the waves. That is, until my dad grabbed me by the hand, began to take me out into the ocean, picked me up, took me out there. And I remember, like, in that moment, I was like, let's keep going, Dad. Let's see how far we can take this thing. You can swim, right? Mom at the beach going, hey, not any farther, David, not any farther. But in my father's arms, at his right hand, that ocean didn't stand a chance. I couldn't be shaken. I couldn't be moved. Those waves had no power over my dad. And I think all the fathers can attest in here that many of our children feel the same way. I think about my own son, Elijah, and some of the crazy things that he's just trusted me with. One time we were out uh, hiking and came across this sort of uh, ropes course out at USI, and there was this platform that he climbed up on. And I'm not talking like he was at eye level with me. I'm like, he was like 10 feet in the air. And he says, catch me, Dad. And he jumps off the, off the platform. Just, he knew I would catch him, you know. The, the amount of, and I caught him, I caught him. The amount of trust, though, and security that a child has in his father, that's what's being pictured here. God as one who will hold us secure at his right hand, we cannot be shaken. This kind of trust would be unwarranted, though, if God were not sovereign over all things. At the same time, he is near to his children. So David can arrive where he does in verse 9. Therefore, because God is sovereign over all things, in control of all things, and at the same time, he is at my right hand, he cares for me. Therefore, verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Secure in who God is and how he loves us. This knowledge of an unchanging, ever-present, providential God produces a peace and contentment that is absolutely unmatched. I thought about, as I was preparing, the, the story of a guy named Thomas Chisholm. I think that's a great name. Thomas Chisholm, who wrote the song that we sang this morning, Great Is Thy Faithfulness. And I, I had actually pulled this part out of my sermon until Robert said he was singing a song, and I said, well, it's going back in. Because the story of, of the song, Great Is Thy Faithfulness, I think is an amazing story. And the reason I think it's an amazing story is because there basically is no story. A lot of the hymns that we sing, for, for example, the, the song, It Is Well, was a song written out of tragedy. It was a song written after this man had lost his daughters at sea. And he wrote this song, It Is Well, out of tragedy. There are other songs that are, are written out of joy of what God has done for us, or miraculous moving of God. But the song, Great Is Thy Faithfulness, was written by a guy who lived, by and large, a pretty mundane, ordinary life. Thomas Chisholm was born in a log cabin back in, uh, back in the 1800s. He worked as a school teacher, and then, as a, and then as a newspaper editor, and then as an insurance salesman. And then... He spent his last days of his life in the Methodist home for the aged in New Jersey. That's his life. No crazy events, no missionary journeys, no miraculous things, and, and you know, by and large, no real tragedies that moved him to write this. But one of the things that is particular about the hymns that he wrote, and this is one of a few that he wrote, is that they are saturated, and this was his effort, 
to fill them as much as he could with the scriptures rather than with his own words and with his own ideas and with his own thoughts. And the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is an ode. It is a, a, a glorious song about God being faithful in the mundane. He says later in life, as he looks back over his life, he said, quote, My income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in earlier years, which has followed me until now. Although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. Many times we think that we only see God's faithfulness, we only see his goodness in the miraculous or in the the terrible events of our life, and we see his goodness and his faithfulness there. It is there, absolutely. But church family, there's something about seeing God's faithfulness, his grace, his mercy, his love, his sustaining in the everyday seasons of life. Because that's where we live by and large, isn't it? We live by and large in the mundane moments of life. As one songwriter said, oftentimes our life feels more like the book of Ruth than Exodus. Pretty ordinary, pretty mundane, and yet what gave this man hope and motivated him to write this beautiful song about the faithfulness of God was that as he saw day in, day out, God was faithful. Morning by morning, his mercies are new. There is no shadow of turning with him. All I have needed Your hands have provided. This was the cry of a man who had walked with the Lord. He was no great pastor, no great theologian. He was just a dude who experienced the goodness of God. He experienced the goodness of God and found in him great contentment. What a wonderful thing it is that we can find such security, such contentment, such hope in our Lord, especially considering how insecure our life is. For although we oftentimes, we live in the mundane, we also know how fragile life is, how insecure it is, that for us as humans, death can strike at any moment, for us or for anyone around us. There seems to be very little in this life that would give us security. Therefore, we don't find our security in this life. David says all this, even through threat of danger and death, Why can he have such a security? Because David had a hope beyond the grave. A hope for a beautiful inheritance, as he said. He goes on to say in verse 10, a verse you might recognize, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So now we get to the main point of all of this. We move now from the what to the how. In other words, how is it that we can take refuge in him? How is it that our flesh can dwell secure in our God? What makes this true of Yahweh as opposed to all the other false gods that are out there? Why is it that we can sing this psalm and it is true, but other people who would say many of the same things about their God, about Allah, about Buddha, about all these other false gods, they would say many of the same things, wouldn't they? That their God is good that he protects them, that he watches out for them. What makes this true of of David's God, of God as he appears in the Psalms? I hope you already know the answer to this. 
What makes this true is Christ. That Christ is the key to this passage. In him, we find the fulfillment and satisfaction in reality, in history of all these things. The key to understanding this passage, indeed all of the Old Testament, is Jesus Christ, the Messiah who has come. If you read Psalm 16 and you reject Christ, if Christ is absent as you read Psalm 16, then Psalm 16 provides no hope at all. In fact, you might conclude David was foolish for saying such things. To read Psalm while rejecting Christ is to empty it of all meaning and significance, even as Peter himself in Acts chapter 2, why this is this verse in verse 10 was familiar, is because Peter himself directly attributes this as a prophecy concerning Christ, that his soul was not abandoned to Sheol, nor did he, the Holy One, see corruption. Peter makes the point clear that this is a prophecy concerning and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. What brought David and the Old Testament saints comfort and security was the hope that they had in the promises of God that he would send a savior, that he would send one who would redeem his people, who would give them victory, even victory over death. The beautiful inheritance that they looked for is obtained in Christ. For indeed, the New Testament tells us that we, along with Christ, are co-heirs. That his inheritance is our inheritance. This prophetic psalm speaks directly to the resurrection of Christ, who was the first fruits of a coming harvest. We look to Christ's resurrection and it gives us hope for our resurrection that just as death and the grave was not the end for Christ, it is not the end for his people either. The path of life is Jesus himself of whom John wrote, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore are found in him who has redeemed his people from the very jaws of death itself. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Indeed, we have no good apart from him. As I stated at the start, this psalm is fascinating in that the theme of death is woven throughout this psalm, a psalm of joy and of satisfaction. Even the threat of death being itself what prompted David to write this psalm. And yet, we as readers don't get a sense of fear from David or a sense of despair in these words. Rather, we are filled with joy and comfort as we see these words and as we see the fulfillment in Christ Jesus, the Messiah who has come. This is how all the saints of the Lord can face death in light of what he has done for us through Christ Jesus. One of the most, it, it just, I say it's, I use the word most a lot, but seriously, I was very taken back by reading the story of a woman named Margaret Magdalene Jasper. This was a woman who lived back in the 1700s, a woman who experienced all kinds of tragedy and despair and devastating things in her life. 
The story of Margaret Jasper is that when she was very young, about two years old, her father died. It was not all that long after that that her only brother was killed at war. And then by the age of 30, all of her family was gone. Her mother died, leaving her alone. Married at age 31, she gave birth to four children, one of whom died at childbirth. Margaret was herself diagnosed with tuberculosis and died less than a week after her 37th birthday. This is a woman who is basically unknown by history. You won't find much on the internet about her. The only reason we have anything about her is thanks to her diary, which was sent to John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, the pastor. And John Newton himself, as he, he received the, the letters, he enjoyed reading, and, and he certainly, as a, as a courtesy, was willing to read this woman's diary, her, her papers, all these writings that she had jotted down over the years. She was a prolific diary keeper, journaler. And as he took these papers, intending only to read them and thank the people who sent them for the encouragement, he was so taken aback, so compelled by the writings of this woman's diary that he edited them, compiled them, and put them in a book that was published in 1793 called The Christian Character Exemplified from the Papers of Mrs. Margaret Magdalene. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. I wish I had time to talk about it in more detail, but I just want to read for, her, for you the last excerpt from her diary before she died. This was written by her just a little over a month before she died. She writes this. I am still under a care of the, the care of the physician, but he gives me no hope. Indeed, it would be both cruel and in vain to flatter me now, for my own weakness informs me that I am going apace quickly. I bless my God. I can now say, thy will be done. I can give up my dear husband and children with every earthly connection into his hands. He will take care of them. My husband's trial is great. I feel more for him than for myself. But heaven will make amends for all. Oh, how I pant and thirst for the happy hour when my father will send his angels to convey my spirit to rest. There remains a rest for the people of God. I know that my Redeemer liveth. O oh, death, where is your sting? Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. When I walk through the valley, I will fear no evil. Thy rod, thy staff comfort me. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. She concludes with this. I bless God. I have not one fear concerning dying. That almighty Lord, who has so wonderfully preserved me to the present moment, will not forsake me in the last extremity. No, when flesh and heart fail, he will be the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the cry of the one who finds their all, their satisfaction, their joy, their peace, life in Christ Jesus. That death has no power over us. Even David, in Psalm 16, so long ago, looked for this day and greeted it like Moses from afar, that there was coming a day when death would be defeated, when sin would, be, would have no power over us. And we can now, along with this sister in Christ, have no fear over death. Christ is the path of life, even in death. 
as verse 11 says. Christ brings fullness of joy even through tears. Christ gives pleasures forevermore even through pain. Let's pray.